the history of Canada's pro-life movement is not as well known as the history of America's pro-life movement, but it is just as interesting. And for Canadian pro-lifers, it's just as important. Tune in to hear a ton about the history of Canada's pro-life movement. Hi, folks. My name is Cam. I'm the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion. Um, so together we can change minds, save lives and transform our culture. Um, it's a joy to have you along for the ride. And I am so excited for today's episode. I've been looking forward to this episode for a really long time. Um, for a number of reasons. Before I dive into who the guest is today, um, I want to thank you for, for being a part of the show, for signing up to um, be on our mailing list for um, through our website, ProLifeGuys.com. We've done a couple of giveaways already, which is really cool. And we have another giveaway um, associated with this episode that I will get into in just a moment. But before I dive into that, let's introduce um, the topic today, the history of Canada's pro-life movement. I feel like this has become more and more important, um, not only with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and understanding um, the the legal situation in Canada, how we got into this legal situation with no um, abortion um, protection or, or um, protection for preborn children through any stage of pregnancy. How do we get here? Why did we get here? Have we always been this resolutely pro-abortion nation as Justin Trudeau is more than happy to proclaim us as over and over again? Where do we come from and what can we learn from the past? And this is becoming more and more important as we get deeper and deeper into the pro-life movement. Like I even myself. So I, I've worked full-time in Canada's pro-life movement for around 10 years now, and interns and volunteers and other members of the pro-life movement are always so fascinated to hear my stories of over the last 10 years, which is barely scratching the surface of the pro-life movement. And and I, I feel like I'm joining that like old guard of the pro-life movement in some ways because I've had a little bit longer of a runway than so many of our, our newer interns who are joining straight on a high school and university, that kind of thing. And yet the amount of time that I love sitting down and talking to people like John Hoff and Malcolm and Monica Rodis and um, Tim and Louise Scatliff and so many others that are, are legends in the pro-life movement that so many other people just don't know and they don't know their stories and they don't know the history and they don't know our our heritage ultimately as a pro-life movement and the incredible culture war that has been fought and the incredible defense that pro-lifers have made for for five decades now um, in Canada. It's absolutely amazing. And my colleague Jonathan Van Maren um, hosted host the, the Van Maren show, hosted by LifeSite News, um, had Dr. Michael Wagner on his show um, several years ago. And I've been looking forward to getting Dr. Michael Wagner on to the Pro-Life Guys podcast for a long time. And I think that now is as good a time as ever with the focus on pro-life engagement and pro-life pro -life strategy development and that kind of thing to have an eye on where we've come from to know how we got into this mess in the first place and some thoughts and wisdom in how we start pulling our way out of here. And so um, for those who have never heard of Dr. Michael Wagner, um, you absolutely should. He's, he's incredible, but he has such a a deep and narrow focus on the, the Christian right, the conservative right movement in Canada, arguably in Western Canada primarily. Um, he's written, in my opinion, the best history of Canada's pro-life movement uh, of anyone, um, especially 
because it's written from a, a sympathetic perspective that, that there's more and more people writing histories of the pro-life movement or analyses of the pro-life movement who are themselves pro-choice, pro-abortion, that kind of thing. Um, and so Dr. Michael Wagner has a, a PhD in political science from the University of Alberta. He's an Alberta guy, um, maybe not born and raised, but he grew up in Calgary. He did his master's degree in, at the University of Calgary, did his PhD at the University of Alberta, as we're going to get into. Um, he's got a family with 11 children based in the in the Edmonton area. An incredible man, an incredible leader, and an incredible historian documenting um, the Christian right and the pro-life movement. Um, I'm really thrilled, as I mentioned, um, that we've got a couple of giveaways. We've got one copy of Stand on Guard for the that is um, up for grabs um, that um, you'll learn the contest details through signing up for our newsletter um, email through prolifeguys.com sign up for um, the newsletter email that goes out once a uh, once a week you're not gonna get swamped by it it goes out once a week it's not crazy it's not gonna spam you or anything like that um, I hope but there's me one that is a, a regular copy that's available to everybody and bonus, there's one that is going to be a signed copy of this signed by not me. Don't worry, it's not signed by me. It's signed by Dr. Michael Wagner himself um, that we are going to be um, doing a contest just for our Patreon supporters. And so if you're not a Patreon supporter yet, please do so, whether you join at $5 a month or $500 a month, whatever it is, um, all of your money goes towards putting boots on the ground um, so that we can change more minds and save more lives. And so one copy not signed going towards somebody um, from our mailing list, one copy that is signed going towards one of our Patreon supporters. And so if you're not a Patreon supporter, sign up patreon.com slash prolifeguys. If you're not on our mailing list, um, sign up there too, um, prolifeguys.com. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Wagner in my beautiful living room because um, Dr. Michael Wagner is a very busy guy. So I'm recording this um, late in an evening on a weekday. So you can see all of my fiction books behind me here. All of my nonfiction is upstairs in my office. Um, and so if you're a fantasy geek um, like I am with your Lord of the Rings up top and lots of Brandon Sanderson right there and some C.S. Lewis and um, lots of other stuff, um, if you're into any of that, then you get a sneak peek at my reading um, shelves right now, but I digress. Let's dive into the conversation. Dr. Michael Wagner on the history of Canada's pro-life movement. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining the Pro-Life Guys podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It, it is a joy. This this interview has been on my my to do list for a very long time. Ever since I listened to my colleague Jonathan Van Maren's episode that he did with you several years ago on the Van Maren Show, hosted by LifeSite News, um, and and I'm I'm really thrilled because while we often focus on apologetics topics on the show. I'm realizing more and more that not only for myself, um, I'm often very naive of my own history. And as I'm seeing things unfold in front of me, realizing that they've unfolded several times before, but more and more of the folks that I, I work with um, who are new to the pro-life movement really have a very vague, if any, of an understanding of the history of the pro-life movement. So I'm really excited about diving into that with you. But before I do, I want to get a little bit more. I, I read a little bit about your bio in the introduction here, um, but I'd love to get kind of the inside scoop you've got a phd in political science from the university of alberta and i always feel like 
it takes a special kind of of person to be able to survive and love and have a passion for politics without going completely off the deep end. Many of my friends have backgrounds in political science. Great friend of mine, Cam Wilson, love him to bits. There's been many late night talking political theory that goes right over my head. Where did that focus and passion start for you to focus on political science and then even a follow-up onto such a deep focus and and quality of focus in the Christian right in Canada and particularly in Western Canada? You know, actually, it might sound strange, but I was interested in politics since I was, you know, uh, a child, basically late elementary school. Some of my friends were as well. I didn't have a particular perspective, though. Um, you know, I was just kind of interested, especially like in, in international relations, the Cold War and things like that. But I, I didn't I didn't have a particular ideology or anything like that. Much of that began to change around 1981 because uh, I, I was in a used bookstore. This is kind of a strange thing. I was in a used bookstore because a friend of mine was getting something for somebody else. And there was a little book there by Barry Goldwater, Senator Barry Goldwater, called The Conscience of a Conservative. And it was only 10 cents. And I thought, you know, I want to know what a conservative believes. And I bought that for, you know, for 10 cents. It was a short book. I read it the next day and I was like, hey, I think this is what I believe. It was a very basic uh, um, presentation of the principled conservative viewpoint from the United States, you know, in the 1960s. And I thought, wow, that's neat. And also that was around the time that Ronald Reagan had been elected and was becoming president. Mm-hmm. It was also around that time here in Alberta, where Alberta was basically under attack from the federal government by Pierre Trudeau with the National Energy Program. Anyway, all of these things were leading to conservative political trends. And I just, with having read that Barry Goldwater book, I thought, yeah, this is this is what I'm part of. So I started understanding myself to be a conservative and I was following these political things. That's when I would have first would have heard about the pro-life issue, although it didn't mean a lot to me. I just knew that that was the conservative side. And so I was kind of on ball with that. But actually, the Big, the big change that happened then, though, was in 1984, I actually I became a believing Christian. I, I attended a, a church where a pastor uh, opened the Bible and led me to the Lord, and I became a believing Christian. I, I'd been raised in a mainline Christian church and, and didn't hear the gospel, and here I heard the gospel. I believed mm-hmm. I was a believing Christian, and that changed everything for me. That's when I became interested in specifically Christian political activism and when I really began to understand the pro-life cause. So, um, that's kind of the origin of it. And what really uh, gave it even further strength, though, was um, in my very last year doing my bachelor's degree, I took a course in what was called North American Political Philosophy, and the professor was a conservative. And one of the main books, we, we studied um, George Grant, who was Canada's most famous political philosopher, and he had very strong arguments in favor of the pro-life cause. Like, they I'd never read this kind of material before, like from a political mm-hmm. philosophy perspective. He began by you know, criticizing the Roe v. Wade decision in 1974. He wrote something specifically against that. Then from then onwards, he was actually personally involved in the pro-life movement and would write very powerful essays defending the pro-life cause. And, and these, so here in this class, we're, we're reading these, this pro-life philosophy. Uh, and I, I wrote a paper on it, and it, it just kind of embedded itself within me. It was actually the first time um, when I was so, to be so excited about a particular class. Anyway, that's just when it, when it really deeply imbued itself within me. And I was a little bit involved in politics. I'm, I'm trying to condense things quickly. Um, but uh, so I went to, to make a long story short, I, 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 after my BA, I got a job for a while. I went back to university to do my master's degree at the University of Calgary, where I actually I focused on defending private schools and my graduate research there. Then to do my PhD, I came to the University of Alberta. And, and I'll just get, tell you this interesting story. I was as a PhD student, I was a teaching assistant and for various professors. And this one professor who was a leftist um, was nevertheless, you know, the old kind of leftists believed in hearing both sides of the story. Mm-hmm. 
And he called yeah. me into his office one time and he said, you're pro-life, aren't you? And I thought I was going to get in trouble, you know, and <laughs> no, it was because he was teaching a course and one of the issues was abortion and he wanted his students to hear the pro-life position mm. from a pro-life person. So he said, I'm going to be away on this particular day. I want you to take that class and take the whole class and just present the pro-life position. And I was like, Wow. You know what I mean? This is in the late 90s. I don't know if anybody allow that now. So I used the George Grant, you know, uh, political philosophy approach because that's Canadian political science. And I presented that, you know, it was a 50 minute class. I spent 40 minutes presenting, gave 10 minutes for question and answers. And actually, it was so discouraging for me because after I thought I just delivered this really powerful pro-life argument, the first question from a student was, are you serious? Like, they, they like, and the, the students were so, like, the majority of them were so uh deeply, you know, into the pro, pro-abortion pro camp that yeah. they couldn't, they just couldn't, they just couldn't conceive that there was anything else, you know, even regardless of what I said, you know, so that was a very discouraging moment. But anyway, I'm just kind of just throwing that in there as part of my um, experience in, in going through university, you know, and trying to present the pro-life cause. So I hope I've kind of addressed what you're trying to get at. But <laughs> oh, Absolutely. I find that part so interesting because everyone's got a different kind of origin story. I, I often think mm-hmm. of um, Scott Klusendorf often talks about how nobody joins the pro-life movement they're summoned into it in a different capacity that that everyone's journey is different i think i mean as we'll get into i'm sure that coming to christ and and really learning and diving into the pro-life movement in the mid 80s i mean when when more pivotal in in the abortion narrative in canada as i'm sure we'll get into um but even even the university i i had a a different university experience i I did a background in in genetics and Mm -hmm. and um cellular biology and had a similar experience of i was that annoying kid in all of my classes that would always answer the questions and ask the questions and like everybody knew who i was i was a pretty hard worker i had a decent head on my shoulders. People wanted me in their group work because they knew that I would um, not shirk the responsibility, all that kind of stuff. And then when I'm doing pro-life outreach on campus, they're like, oh my goodness, the the dodo isn't extinct. Here they are right here. But but Cam, you're a science student. Like, how could you be pro-life? Like, help us understand. This is such a, a jarring reality. And, and so to have a, a PhD candidate teach a lecture at a public university and and have a pro-life um, perspective on it. I'm sure that that was such a inconceivable idea for so many people, but I'm sure that that probably planted a ton of seeds. So that that's such a cool experience and so cool hearing how different people kind of got um, cut their teeth on the pro-life movement and where that traction points really started. Um, and, and good on you for, for diving into politics at that time. I know that, so I, I, for whatever reason, I wrote when I was in grade seven that I wanted to become prime minister and, and my, my political, um, ambitions changed dramatically as, uh, I ran for student council in grade 10 and I'm so thankful that I didn't win president. Um, I lost to like 10 votes or something. The next year I ran for sports rep because sports were all I cared about at the time. And I didn't want to have to worry about the music st- kids or anything like like that but i digress <laughs> I, I apologize let's <laughs> no, let's dive okay. in let's dive into the matter at hand let's dive into the history of canada's pro-life movement to give a better perspective because i feel like often canadians even have a better understanding of american pro-life history because of roe v wade and how much of the narrative that dominates and and the coverage of that obviously not only is the pro-life movement in america um, far stronger in many ways and for many reasons than in canada but also because it, it gets carried by the mainstream media whether even in a a negative light people are far more familiar with the Norma McCorvey story and whatnot. 
so maybe maybe let's scale back. Let's not just go back to 1988. Let's go back to the omnibus bill and even a moment or two before that. And I was wondering if you could start by just painting something of a landscape for us before the omnibus bill, because though pro-abortion and, and abortion rights, as it were, are now lauded as part of the Canadian identity, from my understanding, that, that isn't, hasn't always been the case. But that really started changing in the middle of the 20th century. Could you paint a bit of a picture and landscape for us before the omnibus bill that, that really came up in 1968, 1969, maybe? Yeah, well, I, like in terms of what we're talking about, the main issues mm -hmm. that abortion was illegal in Canada until yeah. uh, 1969, the omnibus bill that you're talking about. Also, homosexuality was also illegal. That mm -hmm. kind of behavior was um, was also illegal. And not long before that, they had changed um, to make divorce uh, more easily accessible as well. Mm -hmm. Like not part of the omnibus bill, but just a couple of years yeah. before that. And this, so much of this, um, it was proposed by Pierre Trudeau. Like Pierre Trudeau was first the justice minister before he was prime minister. He was the one who proposed the omnibus bill that would um, like not completely legalize abortion, but legalize it under many circumstances and also to legalize homosexuality. So he proposed that first in 1967 as justice minister, yeah. but then prime minister Lester Pearson resigned and, and Pierre Trudeau replaced him in 1968. And so the process had to begin again. So it was not until 1969 that the omnibus bill finally passed legalizing, you know, homosexuality mm -hmm. and to some degree, uh, legalizing abortion. Like, from a pro-life perspective, it was legalizing abortion, and that's why the pro-life movement actually started in Canada in a big way in 1969 as a result of the omnibus bill. But the omnibus bill would allow abortions only in hospitals, and the hospitals mm -hmm. that allowed them had to have what was called a therapeutic abortion committee, which I believe had three doctors, and those doctors would have, would have to approve a woman's um application for an abortion like she would have to have it have to be for the basis either either that she had um there was going to be health problems or mental health problems or something so there were supposed to be conditions on the woman getting an abortion but realistically the the, the uh, therapeutic abortion committees acted as rubber stamps so if a woman asked for an abortion she would get them but there were still limitations because it had to be in a hospital and you know their access to hospitals wasn't you know easy necessarily in every part of canada so mm -hmm. this is why Henry Morgenthaler opposed the law too, because Henry Morgenthaler was an abortionist, you know, in, in Montreal. He wanted abortions to be conducted in abortion clinics specifically, and that's what he did. He did abortions in abortion clinics. So, so even though abortion was legal in one sense, it wasn't legal the way he was doing it because he was not doing it in a hospital, you know, through an, a therapeutic mm -hmm. abortion committee. So he ended up fighting the law for many years because first in Quebec he had abortion clinics and he ended up in trouble and I think he went to jail for a while there. But Quebec was much more pro-abortion in its culture than English Canada. So mm -hmm. even though he went spent some time in jail, eventually he was allowed to uh, conduct abortions in his clinics. Then in 1983, he opened the first abortion clinic in English Canada in Toronto. And that started, you know, a major uproar uh, for the pro-lifers in English Canada. And there were many protests against it. That also start, started the the court activity whereby abortion, the abortion laws would be completely struck down in 1988 because he was, of course, charged with violating the restrictions that were there in 1983. He fought his way to the courts, through the courts, up to the Supreme Court. And then, of course, it was in, in January 1988 when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Morgenthaler and struck down any restrictions on abortions in Canada. Now, they, they didn't do that because they declared abortion to be a, a human right in Canada, like <laughs> Jerovi Wade had done in the United States. It was done for procedural reasons. They, the Supreme Court ruled that there were certain aspects of the abortion restrictions that violated you know, the proper procedure for how a woman should be able mm -hmm. to access an abortion. So the whole law was struck down for that procedural reason and, and opened things up so that there were absolutely no restrictions on abortion in Canada whatsoever. 
but it did start because Morgan Toller, that court case started because he had opened an abortion mm-hmm. clinic in Toronto, which violated the existing regulations. So, so the, the uh, so the Canadian pro-life movement started in a big way in 1969 because of the omnibus bill. Mm-hmm. So the Canadian pro-life movement in that sense started before the U.S. movement did, because the U.S. movement went big because of Roe v. Wade, as you mentioned. I mean, yeah. in both countries, there would have been pro-life activism to some degree beforehand, just on a yeah. smaller scale. It wasn't the big issue that it became because some states in the United States before 1973 had access to abortion. And in, um, and in Canada, there was discussion of abortion leading up to the omnibus bill, omnibus bill which led to some pro-lifers to, you know, to get active to oppose the changes that were being um, recommended. So, so there was a bit of a pro-life movement in both countries before you know, 1969 in Canada mm-hmm. and 1973 in the United States. But the issue goes really big once it becomes legalized in 1969 and 1973. But, but so in that sense, so the Canadian movement started before the American movement. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people find that really interesting that, that we feel like we're always downstream from America, that we're just the, uh, <laughs> excuse the expression, but kind of the, the ugly sister at times of, of trying to, trying to keep up with the Joneses south of the border kind of thing. And, and we're just trying to follow them in every capacity. But, but yeah, not only were we um, the first ones to legalize abortion as, as federally. And I think that's a good point that you bring up that it was different in Canada because in America, states had already been changing their legislation on abortion. And so the pro-life movement was in in some ways a little bit more active in states like New York and others that had been more, quote unquote, proactive on abortion leniency, I suppose. It's not like pro-lifers got caught with their pants down with the 1969. It wasn't lightning in a blue, blue sky per se, but it wasn't even as though abortion advocates had been rallying significantly. I mean, one of the, the major pro-abortion rallies that many of those of, of that persuasion would even point towards happened in 1970, I want to say, the, the, with the abortion caravan. But maybe give us a little bit of an idea. So the 1969 omnibus bill um, is passed by parliament. I, I'm sure that, that there was much contention because even at that time, as you kind of alluded to, a lot of politicians at that time were still pro-life in their persuasion on both sides of the alley, that this wasn't just a, a small fringe minority of the conservative backbenchers that were still pro-life in this past with flying colors, that this was a very convoluted and arguably complex um, bill for them to unpack themselves, let alone defend opposition to the media. And so maybe speak for a moment as to how strategic it was of Prime Minister at the time, um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, to pack abortion um, reform in this way to ensure that it would pass through. Because at the time, it wasn't as though it was being voted by popular demand. It wasn't put to referendum as it were, as we've seen in places like Ireland of late, but rather the majority of Canada was probably still against abortion, largely, if not in all situations. And the Liberal government kind of ramrodded this through with a very strategic approach didn't they yeah well like as we're, we're talking we're calling it the omnibus bill because actually it had so many aspects to it it was a it was a com- complete overhaul of canada's criminal code mm-hmm. so abortion was just one of many things and the homosexual uh, legalization was just one of many things and this was part of the strategy that if they threw a whole bunch of things together it's kind of a mishmash. It's harder to pick on one particular issue. I mean, if it was just abortion, the debate would have been quite different, but it wasn't just abortion. It was like a whole bunch of things. So it was in that sense, strategically done to kind of sneak, well, not really sneak it through, but to put it in with a bunch of other things, you know, to help the kind of like a spoonful of medicine to help the medicine, Mm. spoonful of sugar to to make the medicine go down, something like that. You know what I mean? It was putting a whole bunch of stuff together. So there was stuff that people would favor as well as they would oppose to make it much more difficult for the politicians to take a strong stand on something and to make it more 
difficult for people to identify, well, who was really supporting what in this. But I should point out, like, at that time, there was four parties in the parliament, and one of them was a small party called the Creditistes from from mm -hmm. Quebec. Like, it had been the Social Credit Party, and the Quebec wing had broke off. They were And the, in English Canada, the party had primarily died off. In Quebec, it survived as a Creditiste, and they were mostly rural and mostly very conservative Catholics. So... So I can't remember how many there were. It was, it was probably less than two dozen. But those MPs from Quebec were all dead set against abortion and against the omnibus bill and the kind of social liberalism that it represented. And they would argue strongly in, in Parliament, all of them opposing that, whereas um, both the Liberals and the uh, Conservatives were quite divided among themselves, as you mentioned, because, it, mm -hmm. you know, this hadn't been the, the uh, kind of polarizing issue that it had been up to that time. That mm -hmm. would come later. So yeah. there was more kind of wavering, I guess, on both sides. So there were liberals who opposed uh, abortion and there were conservatives who, who favored it. But when it finally came to the vote, you know, the majority mm -hmm. of liberals supported abortion. And the and I'm not sure if it's majority, but certainly a large part of the conservatives uh, opposed it. But, it. but we didn't have the same kind of polarization on those issues mm -hmm. that we do today, because partly because, you know, most people hadn't even thought about those issues. You know, when you think about it. People are very aware of the abortion issue today, and if you're either on one side or the other, you know what I mean? But back in those mm -hmm. days, when it hadn't been an issue, it wasn't the kind of thing that people had been talking about and studying about and learning about, and there wasn't like a big movement this way or that way. So it was more mm -hmm. ambiguous to people. And even, you know, some people have pointed out that in, in the early 70s in the United States, there were actually evangelicals who supported abortion just because, mm -hmm. you know, people hadn't followed through and thought through the implications of what it meant. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was yeah. more ambiguous, and it was throughout the 70s, it be, started to get some clarification because even... The pro-life movement in Canada um, was kind of, it wasn't necessarily ideolo ideologically clear. There was our NDPers mm -hmm. in the 1970s who were pro-life. And the first major yeah. pro-life organizations like the Alliance for Life and Coalition for Life, they actually had, you know, left-wing people in them. Like it wasn't considered to be a contradiction to be left-wing and, and to support pro-life position. That kind of began to change throughout the 70s. So toward the end of the 70s, there was more of the polarization, more of the pro-life was uh, idea was identified more closely with the conservative view and the mm -hmm. pro-abortion idea was more uh, closely identified with the left. And that kind of was occurring throughout the 1970s. So the polarization mm -hmm. by the early 1980s, the polarization was much more clear. And of course, it's very clear today. But but at first, it's it's more murky, you know, the, in the early 1970s in particular. It's, it's not clear like it was today. Mm -hmm. And and that's where I'd love to go next of, of kind of the pro-life response to the omnibus bill. Because as you mentioned, that, that there was a massive wave of response that came to it. I, I know that in your book, you you talk extensively about people like Gwen Landolt, who we've had on the program already. We're working on getting her back on the program as well. An incredible hero and architect of Canada's pro-life movement. But maybe um, bring us up to speed a little bit. You mentioned Alliance for Life. Those early years of the pro-life movement and the pro-life response to abortion access being opened up in Canada, um, pro-lifers didn't dally in getting involved in, in the culture war, as it were, and, and in the abortion response. And I'd love to get your take on the early years of the pro-life movement that, that certainly I'm sure there, there can be lots of interesting analysis about strategic um, decisions that were made and, and even arguably we'll hopefully get into a little bit of the the whether we want to call it the specialization of the pro-life movement or what some would call the fracturing of the pro-life movement that happened kind of in the later 1970s, 1980s, as more groups really dug deep into their their more holistic ideological approaches to things. Bring us up to speed on what those early years looked like and just how effective they were at mobilizing people with, with consideration of the, the petition of first 300,000 and then a million signatures very shortly after this omnibus bill was passed. Uh, the pro-life movement didn't waste time, did they? 
No, that's for sure. They got organized, you know, the Alliance for Life and the Coalition for Life. And I think like the, the two items you mentioned there, those two very large petitions, they're, they're particularly noteworthy. Like, I, mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was by 1975, they had that one petition with like 350,000 peti- people signing it. And then they went for the petition of 1 million and they got over 1 million signatures opposing, you know, the legalization of abortion. And that was mid 1970s as well. Yeah. And when you think about, it, you know, Canada's population would have been smaller then than it is now. So maybe yeah. 20 million, 22 million. And so when you think a million signatures, that's actually a for a petition that's a very large percentage of the population oh, yeah. and certainly of the voting population so there was a big um you know certainly a clear you know widespread opposition to abortion in that sense but yet you know in spite of that you know the politicians didn't move and they didn't you know bring any restrictions mm-hmm. in and w- just to throw in this is kind of a footnote but you know back in those days you know even though it was the liberal party under trudeau that had brought in the legalization to some degree of abortion still the, a lot of uh, disproportionately catholics supported the liberal party you know it's mm-hmm. it's been that way in canada actually until about 15 or 20 years ago no. that um, the liberal party tended to be the party of the catholic church and, and catholic people generally like not 100 percent, but in terms mm-hmm. of you know uh, per, you know the liberals got more support from catholics on a per capita basis than than from protestants and so yeah. you always had that you know catholic pro-life remnant within the liberal party that was opposing um what was going on with pro-abortion and of course there was pro-lifers prominent pro-lifers within the liberal party until at least 1990 or so but it was it would have been stronger in the 1970s um Mm -hmm. and again this is part of that ambiguity before the polarization took place but but yeah like you're you're there's definitely in the 1970s things got things got organized very quickly and you know there was even campus groups already in the early 1970s Mm -hmm. there's groups like toronto for i think um Toronto pro-life and groups like that, they were definitely, you know, it, it, it didn't take years and years for organizations to start to form. A lot of organizations started forming mm-hmm. across the country and, and holding, you know, meetings and, and newsletters. There was newsletters and, and that kind of thing. So so the, the movement was uh, getting organized and uh, and trying to identify, you know, supporters in, of the members of parliament and things like that. So. Yeah, absolutely incredible, and and it blows my mind every time I think of that petition of one million. Uh, I mean, not not to throw our cell, my my the organization I work for CCBR under the bus too heavily, but I there was a little bit of chest beating in 2015 when we delivered a million postcards for the first time. We oh my goodness, we delivered a million pieces of pro life literature, which that's an incredible feat. But to compare that alongside getting a million people to sign a petition is entirely different. We get several hundred people per year who sign up and, and interested in learning um, pro-life apologetics and getting involved and that kind of thing. I know there's other groups that are focusing more on petitions, but they got a million signatures. Like you said, I mean, we're looking at like 5% of the population of Canada signed a petition on there. Just absolutely incredible, the response that, that they saw. And that didn't as you mentioned it didn't, didn't turn the tides necessarily but it, it really brought the abortion issue to a point and as we alluded to earlier the 1980s were really pivotal um for setting the um basically setting in stone unfortunately to this point it seems um the trajectory of this nation and the identity that that so many rally around and so much of that um comes down to henry morgenthaler as you mentioned and james Burkowski, um who the kind of uh, hero and villain, uh, uh, depending uh, for both sides, I'm, I'm sure, who would be um, characterized as the hero and who would be characterized as the villain. But obviously, as pro-lifers, looking at the the pro-life challenge by um, Borowski and and the the crimes, obviously, that were perpetrated by Henry Morgenthaler and the injustice that led towards the 1988. 
Share with us a little bit about how those two figures through the 1980s really um, were a bit of a tug of war as it came to how the abortion conversation was going to be decided in this country. Yeah, just before I get to that, I just want to throw in this. Um, yeah. Like what you're talking about, that uh, uh, a million people petition, it just brought to mind. I really want to say that shows how mainstream pro life was in the 1970s. Right. If you get that many people, pro-life was mainstream. It wasn't like a marginal movement mm-hmm. at all. Um, yeah. And I just alluded to something I mentioned earlier, too, like uh, for the 1970s, like George Grant, who I mentioned, he had yeah. been kind of identified with the left in the 1960s. Like he, he was a Canadian nationalist. That was his main um, mm-hmm. claim to fame that he wrote Lament for a Nation in the 1960s about the need for Canadian conservative nationalism to be a separate country for the United States. So it was the new left people that really embraced jo- uh, sorry, George Grant at that time. But that Roe v. Wade and the legalization of abortion pushed him like it changed him mm-hmm. it, it, it changed his emphasis from from that canadian nationalism to pro-life and how important that was and so the people mm-hmm. who had associated themselves with him during the 60s and into the 70s started backing away from him and he became more associated you know with more conservative uh people in canada so mm-hmm. that was one of the changes from the 1970s as well but joe borowski comes here like in the 1970s he was actually elected as a uh, a member of the Manitoba legislature for the Na- New Democratic Party. He was an NDP MLA in Manitoba. He was a cabinet minister in an NDP government, but he had he was a Roman Catholic who had uh, he had, I think he went overseas and had a, kind of a new religious experience that kind of emphasized mm-hmm. his Catholicism. And he came back and decided to fight against abortion. He ended up losing his cabinet position. He ended up losing a seat in the legislature, but his life was dedicated to fighting abortion, and so he wanted to. The, be- he, the way he figured he could fight it was by challenging Canada's abortion law under what at the time was Canadian Bill of Rights, because this is before mm-hmm. the Charter of Rights. So it's in the late 70s. He collects money, like he forms an organization. He collects money to fight um, abortion, the abortion law in court. So it was a court case that he wanted. And so he launched that in the late 1970s. And yeah, he became kind of the standard bearer of, of mm-hmm. the pro-life movement in that sense, Joe Borowski. He was the hero for the pro-life movement. As his court case started to make its way through um, the courts, that's when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was brought in. So he had to change kind of the direction of his argument from being based on the Canadian Bill of Rights to mm-hmm. being based on the Charter of Rights to say that unborn children have a right to life under the Charter of Rights. And he thought that he'd be able to get any, any you know, the abortion law struck down on the basis that unborn children are humans and they have a right mm-hmm. to life. And so they, they can't be killed. So that was that was the pro-life uh, court case to get the you know the the abortion law struck down, but as we mentioned, then Henry Morgenthaler on the other side had the pro-abortion case to get the pro, get the pro the uh, sorry the abortion law struck down. I mean, both of those cases were coming from the opposite perspectives, and they were going through the courts at the same time, but they were both aiming to strike down the abortion law, but for opposite reasons. Borowski mm. because allowing abortion was killing children and was therefore you know murder in a sense and for Morgenthaler that the the abortion law put some restrictions on abortion and therefore was violating women's rights because there should be no restrictions on abortion so so Morgenthaler's case got to the Supreme Court first well they were they're going through at the same time but Morgenthaler's actually you know got to its decision first like as we mentioned in 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 January of 1988 so because of Morgenthaler's victory the abortion law was struck down then when it came time for Borowski's decision to be made the Supreme Court said well your case is moot because the law that yeah. you're challenging has been struck down in the Morgenthaler decision. And so we're not even going to decide your case because it's moot. It doesn't apply anymore. So mm-hmm. here, uh, you know, Joe Borowski had spent at least 10 years and tens of thousands of dollars and all kinds of effort to get the Supreme Court. And they said, we're not even going to decide your issue because it's moot. You know, 
and that was so disappointing and, and so you know so problematic now i just want to show how inconsistent though the supreme court is because two years later um there was a court case there was this lady named chantal daigle and she was pregnant from her boyfriend they broke up she was going to get an abortion but her boyfriend this is in quebec he got an yeah. injunction to prevent her from getting an abortion so this became a major crisis you know in canada a major political crisis it, her, her case went quickly through the courts because you know there was a, a tight time frame because she was expecting a baby it went to the supreme court while i was at the supreme court she went to the united states and got an abortion even though there was an injunction against her from getting abortion she went to the states got an abortion came back her lawyer went to the supreme court and said look this case is moot now because she's got an abortion, so the case is moot. The Supreme Court said, well, even though it's moot, we're going to decide it anyway, and we're going to decide it in her favor that it, we and strike down the injunction. So the hypocrisy here is when Borowski's case was moot, they said, we're not going to decide it for you. When Daigle's case comes moot, we're going to decide it anyway because we're going to put up, you know, and give you a pro-abortion decision. So the Supreme mm -hmm. Court was kind of making their decision. I mean, they didn't create a right to abortion, but they, which they would... To choose an argumentation that would lead to a pro-abortion decision, regardless of which the case was, you know, without creating a right to abortion. So that, I, for me, that shows an hypocrisy on their part. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that demonstrates very well. And, and you outlined that in your book, Standing on Guard for the very, very eloquently. And I, I think that that's a, a great eye-opener for Canadians on the hypocrisy and also what I find ironic. And, and I know that um, we have, with Gwen already, gotten into the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You've alluded to the fact that, that this was not a good thing for Canadians, let alone for, for Canadian preborn children. But the the power of the Supreme Court and, and how the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms took the power away from parliamentarians and put it into the hands of the Supreme Court. And then the irony of the Supreme Court decision in 1988 saying, you know what, it, as you mentioned, the, the Supreme Court didn't say that this was a constitutional right. They, they um, directed Parliament to develop a, a better abortion bill, um, which is a little bit ironic because they're the the holders of power, unfortunately, now with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, so they can strike down whatever bill they want. And so it seems a bit like like a, a, the abuse of parents saying to the child, like, oh, yeah, by all means, build whatever tower you want. I'm just going to knock it down. Like, we're, we're doing cleanup right away anyways. Do whatever you want. I'm going to knock it down. I'm going to build the tower that I want as soon as I'm ready to do it. But I'll let you have your fun until I, I want to put my foot down. But maybe, maybe talk a little bit about the outcome of that 88 ruling, how there was the constitutional right, and then how it got put back into the lap of Parliament and the Brian Mulroney government that made an attempt with Bill C-43 to replace that abortion legislation with others, and, and how, unfortunately, that ended up failing um, through a, a tied vote in the Senate. But, but maybe talk a little bit about, yeah, that, that process from Supreme Court into Parliament. Yeah, well, of course, with the, with the, with the Morgan Taller decision, then pro-lifers wanted a law. I mean, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court said it's back in the House of Commons lap. They can pass a law, you know, as long as it didn't violate the procedural guarantees that they had outlined in the Morgan Taller decision. So it went to, you know, to the House of Commons. Of course, there was lots of difficulties there. I think there were some private member bills and things that just mm -hmm. didn't get anywhere because there was, you know, a solid pro-life block within the Progressive Conservative Party, but it wasn't a majority in the House of Commons. Like the Progressive Conservatives had a majority in the House of Commons, but it wasn't yeah. all of their ML MPs that's, that held the pro-life position. So so basically, the Mulroney government wanted to pass a law. They had to. There was so much pressure on them to do something. They had to pass some kind of abortion law. So they did a, basically a compromised abortion law, like it was like you said, Bill mm -hmm. C-43. So on the one hand, it made abortion illegal. So that sounds really good. But on the other hand, it allowed all kinds of exemptions 
to abortion being legal, which the pro-lifers took to be like an open door to allow any kind of abortion. So the the, the pro-abortion movement were, was opposed to Bill C-43 because it technically made abortion illegal, but the pro-life movement, for the most part, opposed Bill C-43 because of all the exemptions uh, kind of undermined um, the law making abortion illegal. So both sides were, were opposing it. And um, there was, you know, I, I think the the bill did pass the House of Commons because yeah. the pro-lifers in the House of Commons thought this is as good as we're going to get. You know, we're not going to get something any stronger than this. So we might as well go with this. And there was enough support. It was a government government got that passed. But then it went to the Senate. And of course, mm-hmm. the, the, the pro-life and pro-abortion movements were both uh, lobbying the senators to... Um, to vote against it. So it came to, a, when they did vote on it in 19, early in 1991, it was a, a tie vote and a tie vote is a defeat. So it passed mm. the House of Commons and was tied in the Senate, which was a defeat. And so that bill died. And from that point forward, no government has proposed, you know, a, a law about, you know, to legalize or to criminalize abortion. There was, there's been like um, private members bills on certain, uh, minor aspects like but but not a full-fledged you know abortion bill since 1991 yeah and and i mean this this has become i don't want to call it fodder for the pro-life movement but it, i mean every, every year with our interns we we pose the question as we're researching bill c43 of like what would you have done and and the interesting dialogue talking to to friends of mine like john hoff and jim hughes and whatnot who were there and advocating for and against and and that kind of thing and how it's interesting, and, and you outlined in your book, I, I, I wish that I had the quote um, tabbed. I, I've got a million tabs in the book, but for whatever reason, I didn't tab this one. Of uh, I think it's a quote from Parliamentarian about how it's better to have no law because when the world looks at Canada and the fact that we have no law, they'll they'll exclaim how, how obnoxious and how absurd it is to not have any re- legal restriction on abortion and and how much sense that would have made at the time that that it's absolutely barbaric to have no legal protection for preborn children to be the only democracy in one of the only countries in the world with no legal protection and this was seen as a the the parliament will be forced as much as we've been told that this is our only shot we're going to have to have another shot. Like you can't have a nation that doesn't have any pro-life um, protection. And, and tragically here we are 30 plus years later, still with a, a complete vacuum and, and tragically children being killed all through nine months of pregnancy. And I, uh, I, I can only fathom how that conversation has developed through the, the nineties and two thousands of, holy cow, we did only have that one shot. And and as many people are familiar with now, even bills like um, Kathy Wagenthal's bill from last mm-hmm. year, the year before, about sex-selective abortion, we can't even get a majority of people voting on that, let alone meaningful restrictions. So it's been wild how that has gone. And and I know that we're, we're taking massive strides all the way through the history of this, but I, I'd love to progress kind of into the 1990s, talk a little bit about Operation Rescue as it came to Canada, a, a massive campaign that had been active in the States for not quite a decade, but but for a handful of years already and, and coming up to Canada. And then kind of how the pro-life movement, I don't want to say that it went underground because I don't want to do an injustice to those who fought so fervently through the 90s and early 2000s, but how really the, the focus for conservative Christians 
shifted away from the pro-life worldview and towards other family rights and, and rights of children um, as the um, homosexual activity lobby became more prevalent. I know that I'm packing a lot in there, but, but maybe, mm. maybe speak a little bit towards Operation Rescue, why it was such a, a, a profound movement that was so um, burned so hot, but so quickly it was extinguished and how pro-lifers and, and conservative Christians ultimately got tied into so many other components of the culture war that, that the, the pro-life issue became diluted a little bit. I don't want to say that it, it was forgotten, but it, it kind of got diluted with all of the other areas that conservatives were fighting through the 1990s, maybe. Yeah, well, basically, Operation Rescue was created by a man in the United States named uh, Randall Terry, who was a pastor there. And the idea was that Christians would get together and place their bodies in front of the abortuary doors to prevent women from being able to enter. So if, if the women cannot enter, their babies could not be killed. So they would put their bodies, like they would sit on the ground, especially sit down usually, in big numbers in front of the doors and people could not come through. So then the police would have to come and, uh, you know, arrest them all and haul them all off to clear the doors for the abortion clinics. And this, I mean, on the one hand, it was, um, you know, trying to prevent the abortions from happening, but it also draw a lot of withdrew a lot of media attention to this issue. Like a lot of people who were not concerned about abortion, were not paying attention to it. This was going to put it right in their face because it just, this became front page news. This became the TV news, you know, footage of people being arrested and hauled off into, you know, police vehicles and things like that. So they were, this was going to force people to think about abortion and how important it was and what a significant issue it was. So that was another aspect of it. But of course, um, you know, in the United States and in Canada, a lot of the pro-lifers were not treated very well. Like the police were quite mm. quite rough with them, quite violent with them. And some of the judges that they would be hauled before were very vindictive and wanted to punish them and make an example of them. And so I think that's partly why it fizzled so quickly. I mean, on the one hand, you know, with the Morgenthaler decision in particular, there was like an urgency. We need to do mm. something. You know what I mean? The, the people yeah. in the pro-life movement felt we had to do something. Now, here was proposal. It was getting support from like many uh Christian leaders, we've got to do something. And here's our civil rights movement. At our, this is our moment for our civil rights movement. So a lot of people poured in and took part in it. But again, because of the the police actions and because of how harshly many of the pro-lifers were treated, you know, going to jail and things like that, mm -hmm. it, it, I think that's what, a, you know, caused it to peter out so quickly. Um, so, so it was kind of a flash in the pan that way, but it is still, it was it's quite a major news thing for a brief period of time there. Then, of course, because there were no restrictions on abortion and because Bill C-43 had died and politicians were not at all in any rush to bring that issue up again, I mean, it was a very hard issue for the politicians themselves. They wanted to ignore it. And by that time, you know, the homosexual rights movement was very, was getting very strong. Um, they were getting more, uh, more rights, I guess, like the human rights commissions were, or human rights codes were getting sexual orientation added. So this was kind of a new front where many conservative mm -hmm. activists, many conservative Christian activists saw that this was, you know, what was happening right now. They needed to fight on that issue to prevent same-sex marriage from becoming law, you know, and, and um, from homosexual couples being, getting all the rights of married couples and being able to adopt and, 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 you know, there was also concern about um, hate crimes laws having sexual orientation added to them so that, you know, Christians could be persecuted for opposing homosexuality. So all these kind of um, issues came up throughout the 1990s and that kind of drew the energy away of the activist Christians, really. And so mm -hmm. with what had happened with the abortion laws with, you know, Morgenthaler and Bill C-43 and Operation Rescue, it's kind of like uh, that was a bit deflated had deflated mm -hmm. the movement to some degree. And this other issue was really hot. It was, you know, the laws were being passed and a lot of activism was happening. So it kind of drew the energy away through. So throughout the 1990s, there was more of the pro-family um, activism in terms of opposing 
homosexual rights and you know trying to defend the traditional family in law as you know as the standard you know as the as the mm -hmm. uh, as the ideal of what a family should be rather than going for these you know what are called alternative family forms so yeah, I, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think that's echoed even even in, in recent years here of, of the momentum that at times the pro-life movement has built. And then you see a, a further attack in 2015 opening up of assisted suicide and euthanasia in Canada. You see um, progression being made. And then and then you've got another attack on, on parental rights and education in Alberta and Ontario and BC and all this kind of stuff. Like I feel like so often the... Um, the liberal left is kind of doing the let's overwhelm Christians with having to defend themselves on every single front so that they can't dedicate enough time or energy to overcome us in anything else. If if it was dealing with one issue at a time, I, I feel like uh, Christians would make tremendous headway in reforming society. But the fact that we have to fight all these battles all at the same time, it seems, um, really prevents us from making sizable gains in any one area. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think there's an aspect to that. But uh, I think also, um, like a really big aspect is so many Christians d don't get involved. Like, um, mm -hmm. I think that, uh, like, uh, you, you mentioned what was going on in Alberta a few years ago, you know, with um, the government was forcing the gay straight alliance clubs, you know, mm -hmm. forcing the pr Christian private schools to put those into their policies that they would have gay straight alliance clubs if, if students requested it. And there were so many Christians who would not get involved. Like this was, uh, you know, a direct attack. Uh, on uh, the Christian schools. And there was a, you know, there were many Christians who were concerned, but there, there's kind of a stigma. You know, I, I guess this is mm -hmm. one of the ways the left has been very successful is there's like a stigma that the media narrative and the educational narrative and the political narrative is all, if you don't support, you know, um, the homosexual movement and the transgender movement and the pro-abortion movement, then there's something wrong with you and you're a bad person. You know, and I, I think that's been a very effective tactic to intimidate mm -hmm. really good people who would otherwise be um, you know, involved. But, but you know, like I say, it, like it, 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 it causes people to hold back. You know, they actually don't want to be like Christians don't want to offend people deliberately. You know what I mean? It's, it's not nice to offend people. And it's, it's easier not to offend people and just to, to hold back. You know what I mean? And, and because there's so much, you know, cultural pressures in the media and so on, it just makes it easier not to say something and not to do something. You know, that's kind of the default position. Um, so I think that if that's kind of been the, the real, the most effective aspect of the left-wing onslaught is the way to intimidate Christians mm. not to get involved. And whereas if I think Christians were more confident in stepping forward and speaking out about these things, I, like I think that would have a, an impact. If people, if more people would find their voice and speak out and do something, you know, and not remain silent. But again, like I say, it's it's so much easier not to, especially when you don't want to hurt people's feelings. And, and especially the way the narrative is that, you know, you're hurting people if you don't agree, you know, you're hurting mm -hmm. women if you, um, you know, don't support abortion and these kind of things. And, and, and people go, well, well, I don't want to hurt anybody. You know what I mean? And so it's a, mm -hmm. it's a natural thing not to want to, to speak out for fear of offending people or, or, or causing them hurt. And and so the left-wing narrative has been very effective that way to intimidate and, and close down, prevent Christians from getting involved in speaking out. I, I think that's a, a great way to put it. And and obviously that's nothing new and it, it's certainly not going to go away anytime soon. We, we've seen um, whether it's it's claiming victimhood or, or whatever it may be to to be able to to change the the basis of debate as to uh, uh, even as you mentioned towards hate speech and and whatnot to to redefine a lot of these terminologies and have people guessing like, okay, I, I genuinely want to love my my same-sex attracted neighbor, my post-abortive neighbor, my whomever it may be, I genuinely want to love them and I'm being told that I'm hating them in this way. Like, am I? 
and and even getting people to pause on that, um, let alone to to step away from the de- debate entirely because they care so deeply that they they just don't want to do that. And they they haven't had the opportunity to learn how to engage in a way that is both productive but also compassionate and and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, that's what the whole podcast is about here. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. And and so as we start to wind up, I I could go on asking you questions all night, but I, I respect it that with with a large family at home, I I will respect that you probably have other things that you'd love to put your feet up and read a book or something before the night is over. Um, but two more that I want to to throw towards you, and and I'll save the the good news kind of hope for the pro life movement as my last question. But I, I think of the meme that I bounce off my colleague Jonathan all the time of of um, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it and those who do know history are doomed to, to weep silently as they watch society repeat themselves over and over again. As a historian, as one of the leading um, historians in the Christian right and, and awareness of the pro-life movement, as you observe what is happening right now in the pro-life movement, um, as we engage with culture, whether on a political spectrum, whether pastorally, um, prophetically, whatever it may be, as you see the narrative unfolding and as someone like yourself who's so familiar with the struggles of the Christian right through the last number of decades. Are there moments that that you scratch your head, that you beat your head against the wall, that like, why are we making these same decisions over and over again? Are, are there things that you're seeing that if only people had an eye on history and how things had unfolded before, and if we didn't make the same mistake over again, we'd be in a better spot? Is there anything that jumps out to you that way as you're seeing the the current narrative around the Liberal Party, around what's happening south of the border even that as a historian, you say, okay, well, you're trying this, but we've tried this before and it didn't work last time. Why do you think it's going to work this time? Is there anything like that that jumps out to you? Like, not really, actually. Um, okay. if, um, th- when I look at the pro-life movement, you know, like, I'm just happy that people are trying, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's different people with different ideas and different tactics, and and um, probably there's some that I think are better than others. But, but most of all, I'm just glad that people are trying to do something. You know, mm-hmm. even if it's been tried before and it didn't work, it's still... Yeah better to try than not to try. You know what I mean? And so so I, I wouldn't want to uh, say anything that would discourage someone from doing something differently than I would do it. Because yeah. if they're trying something, they're doing, that's as best that mm-hmm. they can do. You know what I mean? So so yeah. like looking at the whole pro-life movement, I guess I've never really thought about, well, why are they doing that again? They've tried that before. Because you never know. You know some things you have to do over and over and again. Even if it's not going to work, you have to do it as a testimony. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so uh, this might kind of play a bit into your your next question about the future. But like things do not look good right now. Like where we are right now, like things have not been going well. I mean, it was great that Roe v. Wade was overturned, but there, you know, there's been some a little bit of negative backlash there too. And things are not going right now. We're, we're just in a period in history where where you know the narrative is going the other way and, and our side on the low side. But we are we will win. Like there's no question in my mind that that um that abortion will be illegal in Canada and the United States at some point in the future. And mm-hmm. I, mostly I believe that for, uh, you know, reasons of Christianity, like I believe that God is going to stop it. But there's also mm-hmm. non-Christian reasons for believing. Like when I think of in terms of, you know, what's called natural selection. And natural mm-hmm. selection is, you know, uh, an organism that reproduces successfully for the future will thrive. And an organism that that is not successful in reproducing will not thrive. And those that produce successfully will overtake those that don't reproduce when you look at abortion just from that alone you you know from a natural selection perspective 
the Christian, those who do have babies and raise their children and, you know, in this pro-life perspective, over time, this has got to have an effect. You know what I mean? When you, yeah. especially when you consider that the pro-abortion people are, are much less likely to have large families. Some of them don't, have, I mean, deliberately don't have families at all. Um, and yeah. they are not reproducing. So there's a kind of, I don't know if I want to call it a natural justice or something like that, but like this is a, not a theological argument at all, but it's yeah. just looking at how, you know, at biological processes and the biological processes that um, are supported by the Christian worldview, like having mm -hmm. traditional families, having children, raising our children, that biologically, that leads to a flourishing society. Now, the other mm -hmm. side, they're like, they emphasize like non-reproductive sexuality, whether it's, um, you know, using contraception or or homosexuality. And when they do have, when a, when a woman does conceive, they want to have that baby killed, or at least many of them do. Mm -hmm. So their worldview de-emphasizes um, reproduction. Our worldview emphasizes reproduction. And just from a purely natural selective, you know, natural selection um, perspective, our side will prevail. Actually, that's kind of, I think I mentioned that toward the end there of, of standing on guard for thee. So yeah. there is, their side cannot prevail. Like uh, a view, a worldview that de-emphasizes children, the de-emphasized reproduction, that, that worldview cannot survive in the long run, like not just from a purely mm -hmm. biological perspective. So they cannot win. Like our perspective mm -hmm. is going to win. And so there's no question about that. I mean, it could, it won't be necessarily in our lifetimes. We can't expect yeah. to see that necessarily, but we can make a testimony for the truth and future generations can look back on what we did and say, look, those people stood for the truth. That's why it's very, very important even for those pro-lifers who realize that things are not going well right now, necessarily, the, the testimony that we're making is something that God will use in the future to bring down the other side. You know, like I say, it might not be in our lifetime, but we're, we're establishing a position. We're defending a position. We're defending the truth. I mean, unborn mm -hmm. children are unborn children. You know, they, they are children. That is the truth. The other side mm -hmm. is lying. We're telling the truth. That truth will prevail. And we are teaching the truth. We're promoting the truth. We're witnessing to the truth. And our testimony for the truth will be used by God to defeat the other side at some point in the future. So it's very important for pro-lifers to continue to, you know, in their pro-life act, pro activism. And it will have an effect. It might not have an effect in their lifetime in the sense that they see the fruition of it. But that's no reason to stop doing it because it will have an effect. They can be perfectly confident that everything they do is going to have a long-term effect, you know, like in the long term, maybe not in the short term, maybe not in the medium term, but it will have an effect. So everything they do is worthwhile and it's worth doing. And there's no reason for anybody to stop or to be discouraged or, you know, from doing what they're doing. Amen. Amen. And I don't think there's any way that we can top that with, uh, are, there, are there any other positive notes? And so I'll, I'll end with this. Um, how do people find more about your book, not only Standing on Guard for Thee, um, the past, present, and future of Canada's pro-life movement, but also your other um, books that you've written about the Christian right, about um, Alberta and Alberta separatism, and, and so many um, valuable and interesting topics. Where can people find more about you and the work that you have done? Well, the, the best place to go, there's a website called merchantship.ca. Like there's a homeschooling business called Merchantship. It's based in Didsbury, mm -hmm. Alberta, and they offer a lot of homeschooling resources. They also sell my books. So it's just merchantship, you know, no spaces.ca. If you go there and just search my last name, Wagner, it'll bring up all my books there, including Standing on Guard for Thee. So merchantship.ca, um, that's the place to go if they want to get any of information from about my books. Beautiful. We'll drop that link in the description below. So right, I, just click on that. I'm, I'm so thankful that you use a local business. And in, in basically every one of my episodes, I try to find the smallest 
entity selling a book oh. because Jeff Bezos doesn't need any more of our money. Um, let's try to find an independent printer or whether it's um, Lifecycle Books with Paul Broughton over there or, or somebody. Let's find somebody that we can support locally. So I'm so glad that you you have that. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned off the top, we're going to be doing a couple of giveaways of, of copies of the book, signed copies of the book, if at all possible. And and with that, thank you so, so much, Michael, for taking the time to join me tonight. I know this is a little bit longer than I had anticipated and, and had communicated in the emails back and forth. But thanks so much for taking the time and joining us on the program. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. All right, folks. Dr. Michael Wagner. PhD in political science historian um, and storyteller of the pro-life movement. Absolutely incredible. I could talk with that guy forever. I hope to get him back on the show um, at my earliest opportunity because I think the history is so important. Um, so important as we make new decisions. So important as we better appreciate those who have carried the torch for so, so long. I know that there is a that there is a, a, to call a spade a spade, at times of frustration sometimes with the leaders of your local pro-life initiative who are reluctant to change, who are um, set in their ways, and, and it's tough to teach an old dog new tricks and whatnot. And sometimes we spend far too much time grumbling towards those who have borne um, the burden of defending preborn children for so, so long and have done so, so bravely, so courageously, so faithfully that we don't understand what they've been doing, first of all, and the courage and the the commitment that they have demonstrated. And so I hope that this not only gives us a sneak peek into better understanding the problem so that we can form better solutions, but also a better appreciation for those who have fought diligently over the last five decades, arguably for so many um, that have borne this torch. And hopefully it can empower some of you to consider getting involved in the leadership of your local group. Because while many, uh, while some leaders, I think it's fair to say, are hold this, this issue so dear to their heart that they're so afraid of, of it um, passing on responsibility because they they just have a hard time trusting. I think that's fair to say um, that, that it's difficult to entrust something that you have dedicated so much of your life into um, when when you don't see a track record, when you when you see a, an idea or strategy or proposal that that hasn't been as thought through as you think it may be. I can appreciate that, but I hope that this that there are many out there as well who are so keen to pass baton to pass that torch on to a new generation of pro-life leaders and so um, i hope that this empowers you um, to better appreciate better honor those who have fought um, so hard in canada's pro-life movement but empower you to consider joining them in the fight and, and taking on more responsibility, taking on the torch. Um, and for those of you who have been so faithful and so committed to the pro-life movement, thank you so, so much for everything that you have um, done. Uh, all of the sacrifices that you have made, all of the commitment that you have had, the bravery, um, the everything, everything that, that has gone into it. I have such a profound amount of respect for so many people. I named so many off the top. There's countless others that I can think of, the Gwen Landolts, the Peter Ryans, the um, so many people that, that I could name. I apologize um, to those that, that I can't name here. I hope to, to get back to Humans of the Pro-Life Movement at some point where I can feature more of these architects and legends of the pro-life movement. But thanks a ton for tuning in. Um, do sign up. Do give us a review. Do 
do us a favor as well. Like some of our content on social media. Give us a five-star review on your favorite podcatcher. Um, download episodes. And and feel free to comment and, and shoot us an email. Email at prolifeguys.com. Shoot us an email with um, episodes that you'd love to hear more about. If you're interested in this history, let me know. Um, if you're less interested, don't hesitate to let me know as well. Tell me what you want to hear from, and I'll do my best to make it happen. But um, that's all for tonight. Thanks a ton, and may God bless you abundantly wherever you're at, how many hours in the day are left, wherever you are. May God bless you abundantly. <laughs>